Weary. Weary. Trouble. Pain. Sun's gonna shine somewhere again. I got a railroad ticket, pack my trunk and ride, and when I'm on that train, I'll cast my blues aside. But until then, weary, weary, trouble and pain. Those are the words of a 1926 Langston Hughes poem entitled Blues Fantasy, the lines of which became the lyrics of a song by John Alden Carpenter entitled The Cryin' Blues. Both the song and the poem, of course, give expression to what I can only describe as an existential weariness, the kind of weariness that travels far beyond the routine tiredness that normally accompanies a really long day or maybe a long week. The kind of weariness that Langston Hughes describes is the weariness of prolonged injustice and sustained anguish and devastated souls. It's the weariness of grief or oppression or lengthy illness or addiction or poverty or maybe a steady diet of anything that dehumanizes. I think I saw a portion of this weariness in the faces of a family that's dear to my heart just last weekend when Tara and I traveled to San Benito, Texas for the purpose of participating in a funeral service for a longtime friend of ours who died very suddenly and unexpectedly two weeks ago. And what added to the multi-layered weariness of this grief was the fact that this man's wife, also a longtime friend of ours for some 30 years, lost her brother three weeks ago to pancreatic cancer. And as she was coping with the heaviness of that loss, the unthinkable happens. Her beloved husband of 40 years breathes his last breath. Grief on top of grief, pain on top of pain, weary, weary, trouble, pain. And as I stood in front of that family last week at the front of the sanctuary, looking at the family members huddled together in those first couple of pews, I saw it. I saw the weariness that Langston Hughes describes. Weary, weary, trouble, pain. Sun's gonna shine somewhere again. Got a railroad ticket, pack my trunk and ride. And when I'm on that train, I'll cast my blues aside, but until then, weary, weary, trouble, pain. Have I cheered you up sufficiently yet? <laughs> I do not reference this weariness, friends, to generate a spirit of despair in our worship. That is not my way. But I reference it to illuminate an important spiritual reality that the church can never afford to ignore. The truth of the matter, after all, 
is that the good news of the gospel of Jesus is not that such profound weariness no longer occurs or that we can somehow hide from it in a church sanctuary. Rather, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God cares about the weariness even more than we do. So much so that this God is willing to enter into it in a solidarity of grace for the purpose of generating a renewal and a restoration that prevents the weariness from holding governance over the human spirit. That is who our God is, says the gospel of Jesus. Not a tyrant who orchestrates and micromanages our suffering at a safe emotional distance, saying things like, well, let's see how this family handles this grief. Let's see how this people handle this oppression. Not that kind of a God. But a God who astonishingly stands alongside us in the mess and becomes weary with us. That's the vulnerability of God. That's the astonishing part, that God allows God's very self to become weary along with us, allowing divine tears to commingle with ours. And who, when the weeping is finished, speaks with life-giving power into the pain, into the suffering, into the death, into the oppression. Thereby, and I don't know how else to put this, but thereby lifting us up into something new, new life, new hope, new vision, new strength. That, I think, is precisely the truth that God communicates to the people of God through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in this morning's scripture. And I'll ask you to remember that in this moment of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing primarily to people who most likely are experiencing the reality of physical and spiritual weariness. And I say that because we know from history that at this point in time, the people who would have been reading or receiving this prophecy had experienced a violent exile from their homeland at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And so they were uprooted, homeless, stripped away from the familiar and sacred rituals of their lives. And most likely, most likely, in that sort of situation, a good number of the people were beginning to lose their spirit of hope in, that, in the intensity of their suffering. And it is to these weary people that Isaiah dares to write these words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This Lord gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will get tired and weary. Even young people will fall exhausted, Isaiah says. But those who wait for the Lord, and hang on to that phrase for just a moment, we'll come back to it. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Imagine how those words might have fallen upon the hearts of an exiled people. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint, which is to say, those who wait for the Lord in the way that Isaiah is describing, this spiritual waiting, those who wait for the Lord will find themselves in a way that astonishes them, but they will find themselves lifted up into something new, new life, new hope, new strength. Oh. Now, back to the phrase, those who wait for the Lord. It won't surprise you to know that Isaiah is not describing a uh, passive, or a lazy kind of waiting here. In fact, the Hebrew word used for waiting in this scripture, kavah, implies what I can only call a dynamic participation in the very thing for which we are waiting. A dynamic participation in the very thing for which we are waiting until the thing for which we are waiting becomes a reality. The literal translation of kavah means to bind together. And so Isaiah's implication is that waiting for the Lord means being bound together with God in practicing the things that God values, even in our weariness. Practicing the things that God values, thereby foreshadowing and maybe even tasting the deliverance that has not yet fully arrived. Let me share this metaphor with you. It might help you to understand the kind of waiting that Isaiah is describing. I had a great conversation recently with a man who was telling me the story of his marriage. It was an amazing story. And he told me that he and his husband have only been married legally for nine years because their home state did not legalize their marriage until 2015. But, he quickly added, we made the decision to be married 23 years ago. And with that decision, we committed ourselves to living by the covenant of marriage until such time as our government could bring itself to make legal what we already have. That's the kind of waiting Kavah represents. That's the kind of waiting that Isaiah describes. Not a passive waiting, but a preparing the way, a participation in the very thing for which we are waiting until the thing for which we are waiting becomes the reality. And I believe that we practice that kind of waiting as spiritual people. I believe that we practice that kind of waiting as disciples of Jesus whenever we dare, and sometimes in this world it takes daring. But we practice this kind of waiting whenever we dare to incarnate the priorities of God, even in the rhythms, the excessive rhythms of our weariness, whatever those rhythms might be. Priorities like love in the face of hatred. Priorities like forgiveness in the face of antipathy. Priorities like justice in the face of inequity and oppression. Priorities like integrity in the face of corruption. Even as I say those things, don't you sense the energy in those priorities? There's energy because they reflect the very character of our God. And when we dare to incarnate those sorts of priorities, even in our weariness, that incarnation matters. Those incarnated priorities become a conduit through which the Spirit of God raises us up in grace with eagle's wings so that we might run and not be weary, so that we might walk and not faint. That is our gospel. I don't know how you're interpreting 
the dynamics of what's going on in our culture these days, in our world. I just have this sense, and it's an intuitive sense, and my intuition is not always right, but I have this intuitive sense that no matter where I go, I encounter cultural weariness. And I believe that that cultural weariness has something to do with the circumstances that are before us in 2024. No matter on what level we examine circumstances, there is something that can inspire weariness. In our world, we have this continuing carnage in Gaza. And now, U.S. military strikes. And all of that, all of that generates great fear concerning the future of the Middle East and certainly the United States' role in that future. It's exhausting to think about all of that. And so we turn to our own nation, and I don't know whether you've been keeping up with current events, but we have this presidential election uh, on the horizon. And I can only speak for myself. But whenever I think of the particulars of the election and the rhetoric that surrounds those particulars, it creates in me an exhausting sense of dread. I'm not a pessimist by nature, but when I think about the particulars and the rhetoric and all that accompany them, I'm aware in my own spirit of an abiding sense of dread. So we turn to the church for comfort. The problem is in our little tribe, the United Methodist Church, we have on the immediate horizon a general conference in April in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm a voting delegate to that general conference. And if you don't know anything about United Methodism, the general conference is the only body that has the authority to speak for the entire church and to make decisions for the entire church. And so there will be many portions of legislation, important legislation that's contemplated and talked about, acted on. But with all of the important things that are talked about, one of the things that will be discussed, sadly, and I say sadly because this is something that should have been cared for a long, long, long time ago. But one of the things that will be talked about and publicized in that time of conferencing is what the church will teach related to human sexuality. And if those conversations are not managed carefully and sensitively, and to be honest with you, sometimes they will not be, then the conversations themselves run the risk of causing further harm to those persons who have already been systematically harmed by the church's discrimination. That's what's going on before us in 2024. No wonder people are weary. No wonder. But I want you to hear what I'm about to say because as I say it, I am speaking to you from the depths of my soul. In the face of all of those circumstances that I just described, and in the midst of that profound, multi-layered weariness, I believe with every fiber of my being that Christ Church New York City will have a unique healing and restorative role to play in New York City and beyond in 2024. I'm convinced of it. 
We will actively wait for God, even when confronted with our own weariness. We will actively wait for God by incarnating the priorities of loving God above all else and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. We will become the kind of church that gives to people the opportunity to engage with a healing narrative of hope. And that's so important because in my experience, when people come into the ministry of the church, they're often carrying with them multiple stories that are painful and exhausting and they are in desperate need of a new narrative. We will be the kind of church that gives to people the opportunity to connect with a healing narrative of hope and a Jesus-centered vision for life that cannot be thwarted by the distorted practices and politics that so often surround us. We will be the kind of church, hear this, we will be the kind of church that cherishes the sacred worth of all persons. The kind of church where love and justice hold meaningful governance and where people actually help one another in the midst of their weariness to mount up in the grace of God with wings like eagles. I don't know much about eagles, but I have learned just recently, in fact, that the wings of eagles are unique among birds in that they have to be long enough to support sustained flight while at the same time being thick enough and strong enough to support the uniquely heavy weight of what eagles will often carry in their hunting. And I like the imagery of that. It inspires me to pray that we will be that kind of a church, not the church that hunts. <laughs> there are plenty of those. But I hope that we will be the kind of church that when confronted with weariness, perhaps even our own weariness, we will help one another to mount up in the grace of God with wings that are long enough to support sustained flight and that are thick and strong enough to support the heaviness of what we are called upon to carry. May we be that kind of a church for the sake of Jesus in whose name we gather and in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.